Today, you guys, we are chatting with Pernell Cesar. He is the CEO and co-founder of Black and Bold, the first ever Black-owned, nationally distributed coffee that makes social impact a priority. Their new partnership with Ethiopia-based specialty coffee company, Kefa Coffee, aims to highlight the quality, prominence, and diversity of coffee grown in regions across Ethiopia, which is known as the motherland of coffee. Purnell is an accomplished sales exec and successful entrepreneur with more than 10 years of leadership success, including winning an NAACP Small Business of the Year Award in 2020. Today, we're going to chat about why their end-to-end Black-owned coffee company is essential to the landscape and the story of how coffee goes from seed to cup. Purnell, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Super excited about this. Yes, I'm excited too, and I'm definitely slugging back some of your coffee right now. This stuff is so beautiful. This is the the new Ethiopia release that you guys have. It's really good. Awesome. Thank you very much. Yeah, we, I mean, we poured our hearts into that and excited to talk about that partnership. Yeah, totally. So I guess maybe we should sort of start with, this is sort of like the motherland of coffee. It's where coffee came from, right? I mean, I was reading about this really cool myth and it involved goats (laughs) and herders. And of course, it's sort of Conflicted. Can you talk a little bit about the history of coffee in Ethiopia and why you guys chose this as the the location for this partnership? No doubt. Yeah. So uh, as you mentioned, the myth, the legend, the history of coffee, and we look back at, you know, what started something uh, for coffee. It all ties back to Ethiopia, the motherland. And uh, I'm no historian, but there was a a goat herder who was a traveling across Ethiopia, what now is Ethiopia, and um, you know, was confused at why his goats had so much energy and continued to kind of you know, not rest you know, as hard as he, as he was and whatnot, and uh, eventually found these plants that the goats continued to eat and ultimately kind of nurtured that and you know, jumped down the rabbit hole on <laughs> uh, ultimately what became more mainstream is, is coffee that's processed many different ways and ultimately was carried back to you know Europe and the rest of the world as more people discovered you know Africa and there's a mantra coffee's Africa's gift to the world and when you look back at the history of it, it very much so is oh my god what a gift it is i don't know what i would do without great coffee like i just love the ritual in the morning first thing i do a little chemex pour over it sets my day right it's almost a little bit of a meditation first thing. And also I love the side effect that it like wakes me up, <laughs> which I'm still, uh, still slowly doing a mon cup number one. When I think about this story is the goats kind of munching on coffee. They're not you know, drinking a latte. They're not, you know, enjoying even what we see in a bag. Right. So coffee is this really beautiful plant. It almost, they call it the coffee cherry and it looks like a berry. So you could see why a goat might get confused. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, they look good enough to eat, but I wouldn't advise for <laughs> I would rather stick to black coffee and lattes. But, yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, no doubt. And that, that's a big thing in, in general is just uh, as you mentioned, your your routine right every day and the role that coffee plays within that. And fun fact, that's about 60 percent of Americans that have that same routine with drinking coffee in the morning. And what we you know, the majority overwhelmingly don't know is you know not only the history of coffee, but what it derives from. Right. And the process of we we love the convenience of we love what you know what it does for us and we normalize that but just in the sense of again you know coffee is the pit of a cherry that is the difference between you know the cherries we actually eat right the fruit that we actually eat and and the seeds that we ultimately drink is these coffee grown regions around the equator that are more 
mountainous areas that allow for the soil to be richer for these crops to be harvested and actually have more delicacy within them. Mm. And you look at the way that, you know, wine is harvested and the, the, the delicacy that's, you know, within the grapes and also the delicacy that consumers treat that industry with, it's no different than coffee. And however, the journey of coffee and the journey of coffee in America in particular is a lot different than coming to America as a as a, a premium experience. It was much more commoditized for the caffeine experience that you get. Actually, coffee was normalized in the U.S. by way of military and instant coffee to fuel the military and became much more uh, mainstream and widespread after the Boston Party. And so that whole dynamic of how America has you know, built this relationship with coffee is a lot different than modern day, how America's specialty premium coffee uh, culture is looking to normalize the delicacy of what the crop actually originates from and how it's treated from the farmers that grow it. Nice little tangent there, but you know, it's, it's one of the aha moments that uh, myself and, and Rob, my co-founder, had with being coffee junkies, coffee consumers, loving, you know, the aesthetics of coffee shops and visiting different neighborhoods, all of that, right? That's so fun. But then eventually I have a different cup of some different coffee from a origin or process a different way. And I'm like, wow, there's another level to this. Every time like, there's another level to this, what is this? <laughs> and then you find something you love, but as a consumer, you can't access it unless you're in said shop in said neighborhood. And so that in itself, again, the more you learn, the more you normalize and expect and also question, like, why isn't why can't I have access to this? Why isn't this a normal thing? And why did it take me this long <laughs> you know, to discover that? <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, that set us on our journey. But ultimately, I think every consumer, no matter where they are on their you know, coffee spectrum or not coffee spectrum, if you don't drink coffee, you know someone that does. And, you know, there's so many levels to being able to continue to enjoy and jazz up your ritual or just mature kind of what that experience ultimately is. Totally. Yeah, it's interesting, I think, that you liken it to wine and the nuances in in the flavors of wine. And I, I like to think about coffee similarly. It's like everything from the time the plant is planted, where it's planted, the terroir, if you will, the geography of where it's planted, to who is tending to it. Um, in the vineyard, obviously, it's, you know, the, the vintner. But in coffee, it's the farmer. And everything along the way is so important. <sighs> But it's strange because, you know, you kind of you're mentioning here the differences is that, well, a lot of times I mean, we don't really grow coffee in America. There's some in Hawaii and there are people who are trying here in California, but it's all, you know, in coffee growing regions around the world. And, you know, Central America, as you mentioned, in Africa, the mother of coffee and some of this great stuff is coming out of Ethiopia. There's so much inequity involved and we're so far removed from it. I think that's something, too. It's like you can't really see it. And we're starting to learn more about this in the sense of wine and who's picking our grapes, harvesting our grapes, pruning, all of that. So in the coffee industry, there's a lot of inequity as well, right? I mean, the wealth of Ethiopia has never really been returned to Ethiopia, even though this is where the birthplace of this plant is. Yeah, no doubt. Man, I would love to look out into the future and say there's a way to make up for that. But I think the important piece is education of, and even looking at the role and importance of Ethiopia today, it is the hint largest exporter of coffee in the world, makes it the most important exporter in Africa overall. And um, Ethiopia has over 10 different coffee growing regions that in itself, you think about terroir and, and, and just processes, even just the 
the value chain within that country. Over a third of exports are coffee. And so you look at the, the true importance of that and how densely important it is, but then exporting that much around the world. Even the U.S. is the fourth largest importer of Ethiopian coffee in the world. And so the relationship between understanding those disparities, not just Ethiopia, but using this as a clear example, right? understanding those disparities in order to value what a premium experience looks like and why that premium experience is important truly does drive value back to uh, the farmers. When, again, a third of exports <laughs> are coffee and you look at you know what does economics of a household look like in Ethiopia, well, it's highly reliant on how much coffee can they grow and the integrity they can put into that, or even just not high integrity, but how much can they possibly grow? You know, there's farmers that are you know, going to have more resources, more value, more land, and, and more maturity of processes, and there's going to be a lot of them that don't. And being able to incorporate you know, individuals, no matter where they are within the value chain, meeting them where they are and allowing them to participate is by default going to benefit the economics of said farmers. But then you also look at it, you know, coffee is a commodity, clearly, number two or three in you know, or any respective country, you know, water, tea, coffee. <laughs> um, number, yeah. It's number two for in the U.S. Uh, behind water. And so you look at, you know, the global commodity that coffee is, well, then these countries are susceptible to global trends of something that they are so reliant on. And that's why it's really important to understand. It's great for consumers to continue to understand why uh, specialty coffee is what it is, why it is a premium associated with it, because the fact-based system of scoring coffee and grading coffee, just like wine, exists. And if those farmers that are putting integrity and making investments into that higher quality, if that doesn't translate over to the consumer market, they're not going to be able to sell their goods for the price that it deserves to be sold at. Right. Because the integrity of why they're doing it isn't quite understood by consumers. And so I say all of that knowing that when you look at you know specialty coffee shops, aka third wave coffee shops, right, and the integrity that that um, genre is bringing to the transparency of coffee the transparency of the farmer, the process of how coffee was made, right? And but just better educating consumers of is ultimately going to allow consumers to be more empowered to benefit the livelihoods of farmers. We look at this as a ritualistic cup of coffee. It is literally their livelihood, right? right. So the more we learn, the more we uh, understand where, um, why right? the quality is, the more we can protect and, and also uh, support, you know, the farmers that are creating our product from their land. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and it is such a funny thing. For some reason, it was dissociated from being an agricultural product for so long and still probably for so many people is because it's like dried in a bag and it's in a separate part of the store that's like not near the produce, you know, it's like, it's its own thing. And it doesn't seem like a live product. Oftentimes you're getting it fully ground and it's in this like weird tin. And, you know, you don't think of it as like, Oh, it was, that was a plant. That was a cherry. Like someone grew that, you know, especially in, here in America, we were drinking, you know, military dehydrated instant coffee. And that's kind of where the obsession came from. You can see why there's this learning curve as to understanding what it is, where it came from and why there should be value placed on these small farmers. I mean, and also just like seeing it, 
firsthand. I've been down to Colombia and it's a similar situation where there, it's like a tiny little country and there are all these microclimates and micro growing regions and each one's known for a specific thing, but seeing on a specialty quality level versus someone who's growing, you know, for Nestle, it's a hugely different operation. The way the plants are spaced is obviously so much, you know, they're way closer together. They're allowed to use pesticides, you know, the the style of labor, you know, and who you pay and how you pay. Are they permanent labor? Are they migrant labor? All these things factor into the price. And, you know, oftentimes like my parents, I love them to death. I'm finally getting them on like, I was like, look at, look at where it comes from. It's double the price, triple sometimes if you're getting what's considered specialty coffee that's you know, raised in the right way. So it's, I think there's a little bit of a hump to come over, but I think people are starting to, to care. And it's good that you guys are in like target. That's the thing I think is really cool is that you can have something like that available to everybody everywhere. That's another key piece to our story. Uh, our brand story and why we exist is, you know, again, that, that disconnected aha moment experience in these specialty third wave shops, right? Where entrepreneurs are pouring their heart and soul, not only into their business, but also the integrity of what they're selling, right? And the people mm-hmm. that it possible, the farmers that make it possible. We look at the retailers that we shop, where we feel the rest of our grocery list, where other perishables exist. And then you look at the dichotomy of how coffee is treated and respected and accessible and the education around that. It's a huge drop off. Mm. Right. And, you know, when you, when you know better, you do better. And so for consumers that understand and appreciate the journey of coffee, the specialty coffee experience. And end of the day, we're not, this isn't a storyline just, you know, to empathize with coffee and pay more, right? It, the overall experience is better. Yes. <laughs> right? Oh my God. Leaps and bounds, you guys. Right, right, yeah, <laughs> significantly. Right. And so, you know, you look at the gatekeepers of access, that's the gap. And that's the main reason why Black and Bold exists is to normalize that accessibility but it's hard to do so if you don't have the education of how to enter into these markets, if you don't have the business model that allows for your economics to not make price prohibitive in that space. Right? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the, the, the chops fight the good fight against you know, the competition who may not be vanguarding the integrity of the, the product, at least on that higher level of premium third wave that it could be. And to um, you know, challenge your retail partners to, to be able to, you know, and say do better, but look to the future of what it could mean if you know there's more gatekeepers that are providing not only access but education of the delicacy and the premium and the better experience you overall have by way of specialty coffee being accessible in more conventional places. Yeah, it's also interesting to me, like the accessibility back in Ethiopia, I mean, or, or wherever the coffee is being grown, like so many times you hear like people who are growing the product have never even tried said product. Like it can't even make it back. Like that, that was fascinating to me when in Colombia, it's like most people in Colombia are buying Nescafe coffee. So the coffee has been grown in Colombia, processed in Colombia, exported to wherever it is, Switzerland or America, roasted, dried, dehydrated, or whatever the hell they do it to it. And then they sell it back to the country. So there's like this huge, it's like, wait a minute, you just took it from us. And now you're selling it back to us. Yeah. It's arbitrage. uh, It's not, sometimes it's not even that country's beans that's being sold back to them. It's from a different country. Because the industrial scalability of lower quality coffee that goes through a process to take out, you know, dwindle down all the economics possible, that is still profitable to sell that even to coffee growing regions. And the coffee growing regions right, that do have premium within the 
quality right, mm-hmm. and the supply chain, the product that they're making that they are exporting is worth more than what they import back from the same companies that either the same companies that are exporting or the the, the mid-size and, and small businesses that really make the heartbeat of specialty coffee exist. I am not here to talk names about big companies that aren't doing it right. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just like shit back no, Nestle a couple no, times no. and I worked for them. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Uh, they're the ones that brought me down to Columbia. No, I shouldn't, you know, that, that has its place, right? But it is something that people are becoming more and more aware of and they need to be aware of that, you know? Yeah. yeah. We know what companies it's easy to access, mm-hmm. right? And then price point truly plays, it's, it's the first litmus test. Not only... Is this specialty coffee? Because while that is a fact-based thing, there's a whole tiering structure within it. Yeah, you right. baseline need to be specialty coffee, but where are you within that? We're not expecting consumers to just know that. But price point is an indicator, scalability and efficiencies of a company, more uno, but also the the quality, the integrity that they have on what's still within that that spectrum. How are they really educating you on what specialty coffee means so you can mm-hmm. be more educated consumer? on your current and future journey. Totally. So you guys from the very beginning have really emphasized, you know, giving back to the youth. I love that 5% of it goes back to at-risk youth programs. But also a big part of this is the end-to-end ownership being Black-owned. Why is that so important to you specifically in the coffee space? The Black-owned end-to-end supply chain or slash value chain is extremely important to us. One, because as consumers, and even as we looked at what values we wanted out of brands we we consumed or we spent our money with, when we looked at coffee, we really didn't see representation. That is nowhere near the reason why we went into the space. It was really accessibility of goods and ultimately where our communities are left out from such a hyper-local product. Well, I would say the, the, the defining ethos, but ultimately when you look at, when you say, all right, we're going to start making goods for people, well, you got to learn the industry. And as soon as we start peeking behind the curtain on the industry, the representation, the community, the, the ecosystem was very scarce and it's hyper unfortunate to see. You know, it's not an anomaly. <laughs> That's not an anomaly just to coffee, but it's hyper unfortunate to see. And so uh, as we look to supplier partners for ourselves, one of the most important pieces is how do we impact the disenfranchised communities by way of entering into an industry as a disenfranchised <laughs> business, you know, representing say a community. And like I said, there weren't a lot of partners there, but one of the, I'd say one of the best in class in general, who happens to be Black-owned is Kappa Coffee. And Samuel and the great work he's doing over there, he's he's Ethiopian. He's uh, based out of Baltimore. He's been at it for 15 years. So maybe one of the longest ones. I only know a few that are Black-owned that are has have sustained over time. And the important piece is my man's been at it for 15 years. And as a consumer, who knows that story? who understands and appreciates the value of this. And so he's not in business for that, but the opportunity and ability for us as a Black-owned consumer-facing brand to be able to be a light for, and I guess be a stage to amplify and showcase the work that he does, him and his business and his supply chain and the farmer relationships that he's, he's had over these years, the heart that they put into their business is at the end of the day, that's the least we can do, knowing that we exist and are able to be able to tell that story. And so what's important is uh, also on top of that, when we pause and see where we are today, being the first nationally distributed Black-owned coffee brand, and that's by way of retail, it's not by way of coffee shops. We don't have national 
coffee shops that are black owned, but just the sake of acknowledging that we have accessibility across the country, but also not having that representation prior to us. And same thing for Samuel. We ultimately are examples for those that are interested. I wouldn't say we're the blueprint, but we're the motivation. And just like other people that motivated us that may not have been of scale and may have been walking in their truth, still trying to figure it out. That's encouragement for us to say, hey, not only you know, do we see someone else pursuing this and, and doing it, clearly they're figuring it out without the representation that can validate someone. Right? And if they can look to figure it out, then we can surely at least look to figure it out. <laughs> and I think that's it's just overly important to be able to showcase the stage of what can be when someone walks in their truth, even though they don't see the representation there. Uh, it's easy to say those words. It's really hard to live them. Yes, it is. Is <laughs> everybody? Yeah, I think we all want to do the right thing, but ultimately, like you know, you got to put your money where your mouth is. And then, I mean, and truly, like put your money where your mouth is. It's like you know, re- really reinvest in what you believe is right. You guys know that I'm all about balancing my love of food and wine with fitness. And let's be real, home fitness is here to stay. That's why I'm excited to have an Ergata digitally connected rower. It's the perfect choice for anyone looking for an efficient, engaging, full body workout. But the thing I like most about this rower is the fact that it's visually stunning. Handcrafted in the U.S. from rich cherry wood, Ergata brings fitness into your home without having to drag that sterile gym aesthetic along with it. Their water rowing machine stores upright in a snap and transforms into a connected fitness device with personalized workouts and competitive races against other community members. So if you're looking to take control of your fitness from home, go see what I'm talking about at Ergata.com. That's E-R-G-A-T-T-A dot com. I think this gives people a really easy opportunity. I mean, again, it's you guys are in Target and Whole Foods. It's like, all right, it's right there. It says right there, you're donating 5% of the sales to kids in at-risk communities. You know you're doing the right thing. And I think there's just a real lack of transparency specifically in this industry that is really necessary. It's about time. No doubt. The, the it's about time piece is very real. It's always been about time, but that's all relative, right? And anytime someone acknowledges, they, they have to humble themselves to pause and say, all right, what is it I don't know? And am I okay with that? And now if, you know, in seeking that you learn something and then you have to ask yourself, what I just learned, am I okay with that? You don't have to know everything, right? (laughs) And I think that's important for coffees, you know, that's a whole industry, right? And it's something that people have normalized just experiencing the product and the you know, nostalgia that that brings as well as the instant fuel <laughs> that that brings, checkbox, check. Box, check mm-hmm. right? But then in the sense of we look at, all right, now back to America and the value chain and entrepreneurship being really the heartbeat of coffee connection to consumers by way of coffee shops. Right? And then you look at the accessibility of coffee shops or let's even call it the accessibility of entrepreneurship and the resources needed for entrepreneurship. The Black community in particular, there's a massive disparity, Um, not only continuing wealth gap, but massive disparity in access to resources for entrepreneurship. Capital is required no matter what. Well, Black people have issues with banking, number one. Capital is an issue no matter what. Black people have issues with wealth, with network. And so how do you go into something that is a, a stabilizing pillar, not only for you, but for your community. If you don't have the starting resources prior to, there aren't any, the, the, the roadmap that you meet isn't, right, and the disparities there, isn't your fault, but 
someone that's looking at that scenario can easily cast judgment and say, well, someone else did it. Why can't you? Right. And that's never the truth in someone else's reality. And so the role that coffee plays is one from an inclusion of education, bare minimum, right? <laughs> education and representation, bare minimum. You can at least be able to see yourself as a consumer of a good, let alone being able to understand how can I be more engaged in entrepreneurship, which coffee is a key, let's call it uh, lane that you can have within entrepreneurship. And so we look at, again, shops as a pillar of community. The unfortunate truth is coffee shops, especially new shops, are very synonymous with gentrification of said community because the entrepreneurship and economics in America has not fixed the storyline to allow for it to not be. Right? And the, the, the intentionality of inclusiveness from entrepreneurs understanding those realities, that, again, not to their fault, but that's the reality that they meet if they're trying to open up new shops in said community. There has to be a very intentional bridge at the bare minimum intentional is the right starting point. It's not going to be the silver lining or a silver bullet, but it's the right starting point to um, build the right pathway for how you want to positively benefit a community beyond just your walls. And we don't have the, sol- the solution for that, but it's just the, the, the being very aware of the truths of what exists in the industry that we play in but also the community that we come from, that we represent, and why there's such disparity with us entering into this space. And so for us, we're like, all right, well, the most important thing for us is, you know, we were disadvantaged youth. We came from an under-resourced community. And, you know, we know that truth. We live with that truth. And it was not reflected in approaching or solving that truth with our traditional career paths. And we have all this, you know, it's called skill set, knowledge, and resume, but how are we leveraging it? beyond trying to make enough money to give back. And that was just too conflicting every day when, you know, me and my boy Rod <laughs> would have a conversation about what's working and what's not working at, at in our jobs. Like, okay, well, well, we keep talking about such and such, but we sure aren't <laughs> enjoying the path of becoming well off enough to be able to give back. And so why don't we start focusing on what does that actually look like? And so the most important piece for whatever we ended up building was connecting back to disadvantage you at scale. Right. So we can build a roadmap and in, in just living our, you know, our business values, have a pathway for people to see themselves, to learn from you know, the playbook that we build and also have individuals that want to be a part of that to have to lessen the burden of being a part of that solution. And so, again, looking at our behaviors, it was coffee and you know, our aha moments with coffee predominantly came from actually, no, they most definitely came from being career professionals and the role that coffee played and the mm-hmm. coffee culture that it played. And so when we started looking back at, okay, again, uh, what is the relationship with the black community and the coffee shop industry? And why did it take us so damn long to have these aha moments, right? It was, again, the disparities of, right? And so we didn't want to build shops to try to go at this in a slower pace more so than how do we you know, build a business that allows for the economics to not change consumer behavior so much, change your mindset. <laughs> but not change behavior so much and give more access so those that want to ease in the burden of the, the, the product that the elevated product experience can have. And so focused on becoming a roastery <laughs> from the bottom up. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And it's, it's genuinely a good product too. I think that's the thing. It's like, you know, I'm all about great intentions and giving back and all these things like we all want to do. Right. 
sometimes it just doesn't taste good. And you're like, I don't know. I have a hard time getting behind this because it's not going to last if it's not a quality product. And this is like genuinely good coffee. It's beautifully light roasted, but it's not super blonde. It's not like, you know, bottle blonde Angeline or something like that. It's just really, it's got a lot of flavor and depth to it, but it also lets the quality of the the craftsmanship of the farmers and everything shine. It's really um, lovely. It's got like a sort of a sweet, it almost reminds me of like tea or something. I'm going to take a little, oh man. Yeah, it's really good. There's fruity notes to it too. I don't know. What, what is it about this? Is it the way that you're roasting? What is it that gives it that fruity kind of quality? It's like very vibrant and bright. Ooh, yeah. This is definitely a rabbit hole question. You know, so I'll, I'll start you know, kind of tops down on that. When you look at the third wave industry in particular, there's a hyper focus on light roast coffee and, and light roasting, which is ultimately, you want to correlate coffee roasting to grilling a steak where you have rare, medium, well done. And, and the more you grill that steak, the more it's just going to taste like another steak versus the richness of that. And so the lighter you roast a coffee bean, right, which, I mean, you're roasting, right? The lighter you roast that and those notes, uh, you know, a coffee bean is basically a complex makeup of chemicals, right? And so the lighter you roast that bean, you don't want to under roast it because it's going to taste like grass. It is a crop, right? But once <laughs> you get to a certain threshold, you are maintaining, and your job is to maintain the integrity of the notes uh, and the experience of that respective coffee and that respective crop. And the more you roast it, the more you you lose some of that, but it becomes, it tastes more like coffee. <laughs> yeah. right? so it's all coffee based. It's a bean, right? Um, and so there's commonality there. And so with us, we, we roast across the spectrum, light, medium, and dark. Uh, and we also play with different processing methods, which ultimately is the way that the seed is stripped from the, the fruit. There's different ways that's done. Some are more scalable than others. Some are more accessible than others. We try to play around with offering a different variety of that just because we are retail and online. And some people may have not have experienced that unless it's, you know, on a, a shop in their, their neighborhood when they're visited that we're offering that. And so the integrity, I guess, of our roasts are all based off of you know, allowing people to move further in their coffee journey, wherever they are on a light, medium, and dark, via fresh roasting, and also uh, being transparent on the, the relationships with the farmers and the way that we roast it. That's really cool. Yeah, it's an interesting way to put it. It's it's such a fascinating plant. I'm telling you guys, like we kind of go back to where we started here. If you see the coffee plant, look it up, Google it right now. It's crazy. It looks like a cherry and then you open it up and then there's this little tiny seed. It's the, it's the pit essentially of the cherry, right? That we end up eating. It's so wild. And then the rest of it that like outside the cascara gets either tossed out or used as mulch or ground cover, or I'm, I love cascara and some specialty coffee yeah. shops. You can enjoy drinking it. There's actually a new company called Husky. I don't know if you've seen them, but it's like an RTD sparkly soda with the cascara. And I'm like, thank God someone's using this stuff and not just tossing it away. It's really tasty, lower caffeine. Most of the caffeine's in the bean, but it's really tasty stuff. If you guys get an opportunity to try cascara. Cascara is, is, has a lighter viscosity, more like a tea. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's it's amazing. I'm a big fan of it. I'm glad you mentioned that as well. You guys, Google Cascada. It definitely doesn't get enough play uh, that it should, but you know, hopefully that changes in the future. Look, maybe you guys can make a little 
RTD next. That's you know, <laughs> to put more on your plane. <laughs> You're like, don't worry. He's just trying to change the world. Let's make him make some canned drinks. Well, this is really interesting. So when you guys started out, with, was what was the the inception of the business? Like, how did you guys come to this conclusion that coffee was the way to create this sort of change that you really wanted to see um, in entrepreneurship? Most of our conversations on building a business model that supported disadvantaged youth as, at the forefront took place over coffee in coffee shops and, you know, over a decent amount enough time that, you know, the, there was different scenic backdrops of coffee shops, right. That when we, you know, again, looked at what we were putting our money towards on a daily basis, when we, when it was time to evaluate coffee, I mean, we were pretty primed with enough knowledge base of why we would want to have a brand like black and bold exist basically. And so again, the aha moments that we had, how do we make that more accessible for people? But the relationship that coffee has from a community standpoint, from a connecting people in conversation, and then also from you know the economics of coffee, it being, again, second highest consumed beverage in America, and us knowing we were not going to build, we, just, we already knew up front we weren't going to build a coffee shop. And so you know, it was going to be meeting consumers where they were whether it's you know e-commerce as well as brick and mortar again part of you know the background of our resumes already so why not right? and it was an open space for this commodity premium side of, of the product and so all everything started aligning in the sense of the product need space in such a crowded area but then also just how we can truly sustainably bring to life this domestic social impact model mm-hmm Look, I mean, that's really interesting. And like I said, the product itself is so good. Sort of a, a family plug here. My brother just released a documentary on an Ethiopian boxer. And long story short, the guy, you know, lived in Ethiopia, was one of the top boxers, was going to be going to the 1984 Olympics. And due to everything that was happening in Ethiopia at the time, he was barred from coming to the Olympics, which you can imagine as an athlete is not exactly, I mean, you know, think of Tokyo, that sucks. It's getting postponed a year. Like, you no, know, you're like never going to the Olympics and you're top of your game. And his return and how he's kind of coped with that. But there's a scene in the film where he and his wife, who's also Ethiopian, are roasting their own coffee in the morning, grinding it and making their coffee. And, you know, they're talking about how this is like a normal, this is the thing, you know, this is the way Ethiopian people do it. You know, we, this is our ritual. Can you imagine freshly roasted coffee every morning? I mean, yes, of course you, you can because you, <laughs> you roast coffee. But I'm like, once oh, upon a time, I could not. No. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was just a very beautiful, intimate scene where he and his wife, who have kids, you know, they just could really just kind of slow down. And so I just, I would love to get him some of this product too, because I think it's really cool. It's just been such a fraught country with so much. I mean, even recently, the political history of it, it's just, they almost stopped growing coffee there for a minute. That's wild. That is wild. You know, I, I can't say I'm as in tune with all of the political side of, I'll tell you also, I, I rely on Samuel and his relationship with Ethiopia to, to be you know, my, my moral and uh, educational compass, which is also the reason why you know, partnerships and relationships in coffee are huge, right? Because he has a, a vantage point of, of being from there. He has family there and he's very entrenched. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I'm, we're, what, three years old as a business and I'd say year one, you know, with roasting out of my garage, we were nowhere near ready to uh, go to origin in the last two years. We've been, uh, let's call it, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, unfortunately distracted with last January. So Samuel goes, I mean, maybe like 
two or three times a year at yeah. least. He's just getting back from Ethiopia, which we didn't go, you know, pandemic and all uh, of such. Uh, and yeah. the year prior, we had uh, just launched with with Target nationally, so we needed to have boots on the ground. Yeah, I'm sure our, our sales just going through the roof because people are at home and not in in coffee shops right now. I imagine so. Yeah, for sure. That was a uh, you know the tail of 2020. And in particular for us, with again January launching nationally with with Target about 380 stores, and pretty much across the top markets down. And come March, of course, with state closures and you know everyone reacting to this pandemic and how to stabilize safety, our small startup business you know was frozen in the sense of how we go and orders coming in, and that put a significant amount of uncertainty on you know whether we had a couple of months or not. And so what ultimately happened is consumers are resilient and 60% of people did not want to change their ritual. And so they began <laughs> jumping online to buy coffee, which was is not a normal thing, you all. It's not normal at all. It's coffee, you know, is a clunky product. It costs a, a lot to ship, relatively speaking. And uh people are so used to again grabbing coffee on their way to work or you know grocery shopping that on um, those individuals that one uh, appreciate the accessibility of specialty coffee needed to find what that new norm looked like, especially as their go-tos needed to figure out e-com, right? Or if they were going to keep their lights open and whatnot. And so the uh, shift to e-com for the coffee industry was wild in 2020. We were very fortunate to be digitally native. That's how we launched. We were already on Amazon. We needed to make that experience more branded for people, which we did. And at uh, yeah, it helped stabilize us without a doubt. Uh, and then, of course, as the the year continued on, as emotional of a roller coaster as it was, in particular with the, all of the social justice issues that began to get global play, that had a lot of people pour into Black-owned businesses, and we were fortunate to be a part of that. We were not ready for those sales <laughs> to go through the roof as they were, just in the sense of, you, you mentioned fresh roasting every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When the, the light switch happens and you have to scale immediately, that creates bottlenecks you know, that we're grateful for. You know, we figured and figuring it out for sure, but it definitely was a key silver lining for us in, in the sense of uh, the amount of support that we got, not only just from accessibility of our goods, where consumers were uh, had to transition to, but also the individuals wanting to support Black-owned businesses and fortunately aligned to the values that we we have as a whole. Yeah. Look, I mean, it's it's such a great thing, too, because I think everybody wants to do that. We're all saying we want to support, want to help, want to change. And literally, it's something that we do every day. Well, sometimes twice a day, depending on who you are and what your habit is. But I think that's it's really cool and it's simple enough to do. And it's, you know, again, it's accessible to you. It's on the shelf. It's ready to go. And it's really good. So I wish you guys the best of luck. I'm going to continue to enjoy this coffee. I'm going for cup number two after this. Where can everybody follow along with your brand? Where can they order? Give us all the 411. No doubt. Our website is blackandbold.com, spelled B-L-K and bold. Uh, And our social media handles are blackandbold, B-L-K-A-N-D-B-O-L-D. Also accessible by way of amazon.com, Target stores. We're now in uh, 880 stores across the U.S. Nice. Um, Thank you. And uh, Hy-Vee and Whole Foods across the Midwest. And you follow along with us and we'll we'll have a few other retailers that we'll be launching with throughout this year as well that we don't want to prematurely state, but here in the very near future. 
<laughs> Very cool. Well, congratulations coming out of this thriving. I love to see that. You guys be sure to follow along with us as well. Krista Simmons and Fork in the Road Media on Instagram, Twitter. We'll be back for another episode next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. Thank you so much, Brunel, for joining us. It was really great talking to you. Oh, thank you, Krista. <laughs> All right. Take care.